You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. And now for a special treat, what might be Harlan Ellison's last convention speech ever. Be prepared for potentially rude and offensive language. You were warned, and now let's listen to Harlan Ellison. And he comes up to the, he gets on another stool, and he gets up onto the bar, and he says to the bartender, You got any peanuts? And the bartender says, Pretty funny, yeah, we got peanuts. We got a little bowl of peanuts down here at the end of the bar. You can have the peanuts. The platypus eats all the peanuts. Jumps down, goes away. Seven minutes later, platypus comes back. Climbs up the stool, gets on the bar, says to the bartender, You got any peanuts? Bartender says, No, you, you ate all the peanuts there. There ain't no more peanuts. I'm sorry. Bye. Platypus gets down, goes away. Seven minutes later, platypus comes back again, climbs up the stool, gets on the bar, says to the bartender, You got any peanuts? He says, uh, No, no. And this joke is wearing a little thin. We don't have any more peanuts. You've eaten them all. Uh, I've got people to take care of. Would you go away, please? Platypus goes down, goes away. Seven minutes later, comes back. Says the bartender, You got any peanuts? Bartender says, No, there are no more peanuts. And you see this stapler I got back here behind the bar? He says, If you come back in here one more time, I am going to staple your goddamn bill to this bar top. Do you understand? And the platypus says to him, You got any staples? He says, no. He says, you got any peanuts? <laughs> oh, it's going to be that kind of a crowd, is it? You think you're going to defy me, do you? Did he really? Oh, he tells it to duck and, and grapes. Who ever heard of a bar with grapes, you see? This is why Folio is good for drawing, but he's shit for telling jokes. <laughs> Climb upon my knees, sonny boy. Now you're only three, sonny boy. Take that, motherfucker! <laughs> okay, let us start. How many of you have never been to one of my lectures before? Oh, 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 oh. Do the phrase fresh meat strike a familiar note? <laughs> Let me try and explain so that you don't come away later saying, oh my God, oh my God. About uh, two months, uh, just before they gave me the Grandmaster Award, um, I had to lecture in Minneapolis, just outside Minneapolis. In, uh, Susan, where are you, baby? What was the name of the town? I can't hear him. Bloomington. Bloomington, not Wisconsin. Bloomington, I was in Bloomington, Illinois. <laughs> his heart, his heart kept beating. That infernal heart of his. Stop the noise. So, um, uh, I'm talking to the audience, and it's a big audience, about 1,500 people. And what usually happens is, as they've done here, the people in wheelchairs are brought down front. Now, this, are you? I'm sorry. What? You, oh, you're talking in your. Yeah. Leave him alone. I work a single. <laughs> so, uh, it's the same as at a, uh, 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 the first time I ever saw it with the wheelchairs way down front was that when I was on tour with the Rolling Stones. And I thought, well, geez, that's, you know, that's really great. And then, <laughs> and then Charlie Watts explained to me, no, they do that because uh, when the audience breaks and try to get at us on the stage, they have to go over the wheelchairs first. <laughs> And it happened at every single, every single show. The same thing happened. Uh, they would, they would just 
poor people in these motorized pintos here, they would just you know, go over them. So uh, they do that now at my lectures too, except they put you back here because you're sitting with, is that your, is that your uh, squeeze there? Is that your, that's uh, Kep Man? That's your floozy, is he? I see. Slut. So, so uh, I'm talking like this, and I'm talking to the crowd, and suddenly this guy who's been sitting here for about an hour, he's sitting there, you know, right about where this dude is on the end of the line here, and I, and I look, and, the, and I say, you ain't got no legs. And he says, no. I says, you, you got no legs. The guy says, no, no, I don't have any legs. They, they've been amputated. And I said, well, that's pretty goddamn careless. <laughs> I said, you know, you can misplace where you parked your car, but your own fucking legs? I mean, what, what are they leaning up in a closet? And when now the guy, tears are streaming down his face. The audience is sitting much as you. <laughs> thinking, Jesus Christ, what an insensitive, politically incorrect, what a monster. Like this woman sitting right here with the green top who's looking at me like this. She's saying, how low will this fucker sink? We are not even approaching the nadir, my dear. If you are easily upset by any goddamn thing, please leave the room. I give you the opportunity right now. I don't want you later to say, God will strike you dead. I've been talking to God. And uh, she, she and I have a perfectly good understanding. God and I have a nodding acquaintance. She says nodding, I say nodding, and that's it. Uh, but what I say to audiences, and I did this to an audience in um, a community college full of dimwits and very dim bulbs in uh, the Phoenix area. Uh, they were, uh, you know, people in community colleges are not really rocket scientists. And um, I couldn't get them to say anything. Couldn't get them to say a damn thing. And uh, so I st the, the, the tougher they were for me to talk to, the angrier I get. The angrier I get, the more demented I get. There's a chair right here. Would you like to sit down? How about you, sir? Would you like to sit down? Then get the fuck out. <laughs> no. See, they, they think, they, they think they, no, I will not. What, what will he do? Don't ask. <laughs> Don't ask. Ask. Ask the Reverend Falwell and his Christians what I did to them in uh, Greensboro, North Carolina. Well, no, no, better, better what I did to them in Baton Rouge. Baton Rouge was, was I, my wife, where is my wife? Hiding, Hiding again, yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. A woman says, any day you speak, I wear very, very small shoes. Um, I'll tell you the Baton Rouge story sometime. It's a, it's a beauty. Uh, now, at all true, there are witnesses to it. Is there anybody here who was either at Greensboro or at Baton Rouge when I did the moral majority uh, fracas? No? Well, that's right. You're all fresh meat. Anyhow, um, so I'm at this stupid community college in, uh, uh, in the Phoenix area, and I couldn't get them to talk, and, and I couldn't get them to laugh, and there was nothing I could say that would make them laugh, and I was getting angrier and angrier and angrier, so I started saying things that were really reprehensible. Uh, and, and I know from reprehensible, trust me on this. And, and uh, so I start saying reprehensible to them, and uh, they look a little alarmed. And I said to them, as I say to you, uh, I am a full-service, uh, bigot, racist, uh, bad-taste fellow. If by the end of my talk I have not insulted your physical infirmity, your sexual choice, your color, your race, your religion, your ethnicity, uh, or anything else, please raise your hand. I will try to get to you. <laughs> so this one, there's always one person like him who thinks they're going to be, you know, this one who says, well, you cannot insult me because I am Puerto Rican. And I said, you're absolutely right. There is no way to insult a Puerto Rican who understand that they are the niggers of the Latin world. And... <laughs> what did he say? He didn't say, yeah, I said that. Um, I, only, I only actually have malice in my heart for one group of people, and that's, well, most people who voted for George W. Bush. Uh, 
on, on, account of, on account of the group that I can't stand are dummies. I can't stand stupid people. Now, I, I'm an arrogant person, clearly. The only thing that has ever held me back is my humility. But I come among you unarmed, except for my wit, which is rapier-like. And um, why are you raising your hand? You want to go to the pot? Hello, Joel. Sit your ass down, Joel. You know, here's the thing about my career. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you this in, in all honesty. I am under no illusions that I am not Fyodor Dostoevsky. I am not Graham Greene. I'm okay. I'm a good writer. I mean, otherwise you wouldn't be sitting here unless you, you have a thing for self-flagellation. <laughs> and and, and I, I take what I do very seriously. I don't take me particularly seriously, as you can tell, but I do take what I do very seriously. Then I go out and I meet my audience. I meet my readers. And they seem to be decent enough folks, but a little, how shall I put this delicately, bug fuck! <laughs> and you guys, I swear to God, I watch Lewis Black and I say, I'm cl we're clone brothers. We were separated at birth, honest to God. Every time I hear that moron George W. Bush open his mouth, I die! Die, you chimpanzee, die! Except then I remember who's vice president. And I, and I scream, live, live. It's a terrible dichotomy. Are you enjoying yourself? You're not moving, but you're giggling. Oh, don't play the I'm crippled routine with me, kid. Can I do all? Got your nose. Look in the dictionary where you see fat ass, you will see my behind. Actually, in truth, this is gonna make you weep for me. I tore my rotator cuff. Oh, poor baby. And I am in some considerable pain, but I don't know how the hell else to get up out of this. Oh yeah, I'll go, I'll, I'll turn my back on them, right. <laughs> Wait a minute, hold on, I'll get, no, I'll do it. This is gonna, you're gonna, you know, invariably, when I begin railing against something like George W. Bush or the stupidity of morons using iPods, which is the dumbest fucking invention ever created. I love iPods. That whole generation, and there's none of them in this room because everybody in this room is over, I don't know, somewhere between 30 and death. Um, <coughs> they cannot be separated from their shit music long enough to walk across the street. So there they are, making sure that Britney Spears' thong is on properly and they get hit by a Seven Santini Brothers moving van. I love that. I think it's a great way to narrow down the population pool. Uh, how many of you in this room, he said, knowing full well that most of them will keep their hands to themselves because they're not fuckers. How many of you have iPods and use them regularly? Ah, there you are. There you are. And you swear by them, of course. You swear by them. You swear by them, sir? And, and what do you do with your iPod? Do you, uh, do you have carnal knowledge of your iPod? <laughs> No, 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 don't, don't haul the thing out and show it to me. <laughs> Jesus Christ, they're like people with goiters. They can't wait to show you the hideous inflammation. I don't want to see your fucking iPod. I've seen pictures of them in magazines. They all look the same. They look like crap, larger or smaller. Hiya! No. This is not good, baby. Oh, this is. Thank you. Uh. I was slim. I was lithe. What do you got there? Those are my glasses. Thank you. Okay. Oh, a sea of faces. Actually, in truth, without my glasses, it looks like a Jackson Pollock painting. A lot of little dots back there. Where was I? Past iPods. Past iPods. They're not worth talking about. 
Okay. Does anyone have, a, first of all, let's get rid of the, the filthy rumors. Since I know you all have, the people who have never been in the room with me have heard the rumors. Can I please have the hand of someone who has never been to one of my lectures is seeing me for the first time, but you've got this story you know is absolutely true. The woman way in the back in black, you'll have to speak up or run down here very fast. Dear, I can't even hear the squeak. You either have to move your gigantic, rotund, chocolate-filled ass down here or scream. Don't, don't saunter. Lope. Move it. Move it. I'm 72 years old. I'm not going to last that long. I don't want to turn your fucking question into a career. You have a microphone in your hand. Now I don't need you to come down here. Rocket science. Hi, nice to see you. <laughs> and I, you. May I be of some service to you? Um, how does it feel to be an icon um, worshipped by millions worldwide? I am I'm, not I am not a plant. I'm quietly humble and proud to be as I, I am so famous that I find it difficult getting out of bed some mornings. It's uh, what a stupid question. Jesus Christ, who the hell do you think I am? Kevin Federline? Uh, th thank you. Thank You're you. more than welcome, sir. Uh, how do I feel about being an icon? You gotta understand, I've been a legend in my own mind for decades, baby. I'll tell you the moment I first knew that I was, I was worth the price. It's a great story. One of my great idols was always the famous writer, Dorothy Parker. For many of you here, that name will resonate about as well as uh, Helen Gehagen Douglas, uh, uh, of, 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 which is also a famous name, nonetheless. Dorothy Parker did a review of a very small paperback of mine called Gentleman Junkie and Other Stories of the Hung Up. Oh, by the way, when we're done, uh, I will be selling my books right outside here. Uh, there's, a, there's a signing thing way off in East Weewa that I will not go to. I'm, you're here. You're a captive audience. I got you. Uh, if you want to read one of my books, just come right outside the door, get in a line. I will sign everything. Uh, for every three that I sign, you have to buy a book. Uh, there's not going to be the thing with the with the with the with the, the old fan who's got the box this big, and who and who so that he doesn't make me unhappy with 46 copies of amazing stories from 1955. Would you mind signing every one of your stories and the pseudonyms too? Uh, and then and they know that I get cranky after a certain period, and and will attack anything that moves. Uh, he's got his poor wife, the mules. He's got the mule of his wife schlepping 400 of them, and his kids in varying heights going behind. And I'll say to a kid who wants me to sign, love ain't nothing but sex misspelled, I'll say, uh, did you enjoy this book? Huh? This book, did you find it uh, an appealing read? Huh? And then I'll say, is that daddy? Huh? And I'll say, daddy, come here. And then I'll say, daddy, don't bring your goddamn kids out to do your fucking drone work and get him out of the line. Then they go back and tell stories about what a bad person I am. Uh, I will be happy to sign books, but only in a rational way. You buy something, keep me from having to sell my body on Wilshire Boulevard. <coughs> I've been dancing for dimes on Wilshire Boulevard. Uh, and I will happily sign three, four of your other books. Anyhow, Dorothy Parker did this review of a book of mine called Gentleman Junkie and Other Stories of the Hung Up Generation, a little 50 cent paperback. God knows how she came by it, and she just raved about it. Well, Dorothy Parker, dude, Dorothy Parker, I mean, we're not, we're not, we're not, we're not, we're not, we're not, we're not talking here, Gardner Dozois. <laughs> I mean, okay, Adam Troy Castro likes my work. Terrific. Dorothy fucking Parker, we're talking here. And the minute I saw that review, I went crazy. And I, and I said, I'm, I am finally, I am, I'm okay, I'm a writer. Years, not too many years later, maybe one, two years later, I'm out in Hollywood, and somebody says to me, would you like to meet Dorothy Parker? 
Marlon Spike driven through the left side of my head. Meet Dorothy Parker. Oh yeah, no contest. And they set it up so that I could meet Dorothy Parker. And I was destitute. When I got to Hollywood, this is not one of those Horatio Alger stories, just flat truth. I had exactly 10 cents in my pocket. I was traveling with my second wife, who we were about to get divorced, and uh, we got into town, and I, moved, and I moved into a travel lodge on Vine Street, because I saw the, the, uh, the Capitol Tower, and I knew I was in Hollywood. And uh, I was eking out an existence, and I was living in a, uh, a, a, um, a very small uh, treehouse in Beverly Glen. And uh, they set it up that I should go, go meet Dorothy Parker on a Sunday afternoon. And I was so skinny and weighed so little, I was under 90 pounds. Uh, 135 is about my proper weight. I'm 190 now, and it's not good. As you can see, I can't get my fat ass up on a stage. But uh, I weighed about 90 pounds, and I was so embarrassed that my pants flapped against my ass like an old man in the street that I had to keep my jacket buttoned. It was in the middle of the summer. It was hotter than hell. And this was the one suit I owned. And uh, she and her husband, Alan Campbell, the famous, uh, the famous uh, dramatist and, 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 and film writer, lived on Norma Place, which was named after the great movie actress Norma Talmadge. It was a street named after her. And they had a cottage, and it was uh, covered with ivy, and it was, it was just, it's one of those wonderful little neighborhoods that has been preserved from the early Hollywood days. And I came in, and Dorothy Parker received me absolutely marvelously. She looked a lot like you at the point. At that point, she was she had gray hair, and she was the dearest woman in the world. I mean, she she had a barbed tongue when she did reviews. She was known for cutting nobody any slack at all. But she, you know, who else was at that? Uh, who was at that uh, that that afternoon? Was um, Christopher Isherwood? Uh, was um, uh, Don Bacardi, the artist who was Christopher Isherwood's lover, and uh, Alan Campbell? and uh, Ben Hecht, and uh, two or three more. I mean, just, Lord, kill me now. Uh, and she and I sat in the living room on the sofa for the longest while, and I thought, she won't remember who I am because she had done the review maybe six months, a year earlier. Not only did she remember the review, she remembered every goddamn story in the book and quoted back to me lines. She had an absolutely astonishing memory, which if it was not completely eidetic, was at least telephonic, because she could remember hearing herself reading these things aloud. And she talked to me about this, and I was just wowed by her and knocked out. This woman was my idol, and was one of the finest writers America ever produced. And at the end of the uh, afternoon, as the shadows lengthened, and we were beginning to sit in gloom, and. I knew they were going to go have dinner somewhere or do something, and I didn't want to intrude. Uh, I said, uh, I said uh, she, she, she insisted I call her Dorothy by that time, and, and I fell back into Ms. Parker. I said, Ms. Parker, could I be an absolute doofus and ask you to sign a book of mine? And she said, no problem. And I went out to the car, because I'd left it there, I wouldn't bring it in, was the Modern Library, the little edition of the collected stories of Dorothy Parker. Uh, it, was a very, it, was a, it was the first Dorothy Parker in the Modern Library, and it was small. And I, and I brought it in, and she signed it at great length. <coughs> and I was using, uh, as a bookmark, a, um, a little puppet of Pinocchio. And she played with the head of the movable puppet for a while. And, um, and she said, uh, you're a very sweet young man, and uh, do come again. <laughs> and uh, I said, thank you, and I went away. It was not till I got home to the treehouse, and I got the book to this day. If you ever come to the house, Janice, you'll see it. She had written in it, to Harlan Ellison, I wish I were as good a writer as you are, Dorothy Parker. Well, Lord Almighty, I think I'm about to take the vapors. <laughs> uh, it's a good thing I didn't read it in the house. I swear I'd have had an infarct on the spot and dropped dead right in the middle of the woman's carpet. Um, it was at that moment I knew I was an icon. <laughs> Does that answer your question, lady? Thank you. Is there uh, now we were going to go for the piece of really ugly gar uh, 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 gossip about me. Some, let's not do the one about me dropping the chandelier on people. We know that one's bullshit. Uh, or the one about me throwing the guy down the elevator shaft. We know that one is bullshit. Um, is there, uh, does someone else have one? A uh, guy way in the, why is it always guys way in the back? Are you trying to make a quick exit? Is that it? You get a, can you yell loudly?
Go ahead. Did I mail a dead rat to whom? To a Hollywood producer? No. I mailed a dead gopher to a New York publisher. Now, how many of you know this story, and how many of you do not know? Okay, how many of you know the story? Okay, so they'll verify that I'm not making it up. For those of you who don't know the story, this is absolutely gospel truth. I had a book published by Signet Books, New American Library. It was a book called, uh, it was, uh, I think it was Ellis in Wonderland. It was an early collection of not bad stuff. But my contracts all said, you may not bind in ads to the, magazine, to the book that I have not approved. Well, in those days, and for a, quite, for a period until readers got very fed up with it, they were binding in cigarette ads, stiff cardboard cigarette ads right in the middle of the book. And to get it out, you had to break the spine of your book. And it was really, it was not good. Well, they publish Ellis in Wonderland with cigarette ads in it. So I call my poor editor, Olga Vazaris, and I said, who's the sweetest woman in the world, and I said, Olga, they've breached my contract. I want the books back, and I want these things pulped, and I want them pulped now. And she says, oh, God, oh, God, I can't do that. Blah, blah, blah. Everybody was just, I was only, I was only in the pastry core. <laughs> I didn't know what they were doing over there. I thought maybe they were roasting chickens in those ovens. I, you know, pizzas, perhaps, conservative, orthodox, and reformed pizzas. I don't know. Uh, nobody can do anything. It is a headless snake. And if you allow yourself to be discouraged by this at any point, you get just what you deserve, which is to be a victim. And I have never been a victim. So I said, okay, Olga, uh, I want you to pass this along to whomever. And they got a week to get back to me. Well, a week goes by, and I don't hear from anybody. So I call Olga again, and I say, uh, what's up? Well, I said, right. I said, uh, and I'm, now I'm like Parker in a Richard Stark novel. I said, somebody owes me money, and if it ain't going to be Mal, who's Mal's boss? And she names some guy or some woman. I say, fine. So I now move up the ladder to the editor-in-chief, and I get in touch with the editor-in-chief. And uh, after getting through to her finally, after days of trying, she says, well, have your agent contact me. And I said, fine. So my agent, who at the time was Robert Mills, Robert Mills contacted her and said, this is what you've done wrong. Take a look at the book. Get back to us immediately. Well, another two weeks go by, and there's, you know, they figure if they ignore you long enough, you'll go away. I don't know about you, but when you call somebody about something you're pissed off about, and they never call you back, they got to have fucking bat guano for brains not to understand that this is not going to mollify you or drive you away. All it's going to do is infuriate you, drive you fucking crazy to the point of such madness you will do anything. Well, this is what it is like with me. You don't return my phone call, I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. So uh, I now move up to her boss, who is the head of New American Library, Signet Books, uh, which is affiliated at this time with, I don't know, Random House or whoever the fuck it was. And uh, I start calling him. And he uh, doesn't want to be bothered by this. I am beneath notice. I'm this crawling gnat who had a little paperback. Why are you bothering me? And I'm telling them that it's going to get worse. I then have an attorney send a letter. You'll notice I'm going through channels. Called my editor, called the editor-in-chief, called the publisher. All of them are too busy being big hotshots to take care of anything. They do not understand that even the smallest gnat can crawl up your ass and eat your innards. They don't get that. They are too, too imbued with their own ego, ego madness, their hubris. You are beneath contempt. So the attorney sends a letter. They ignore the attorney's letter, and I say, okay, channels ain't working. Now we go commando. <laughs> now we go commando. They have fobbed this off now onto a guy named uh, Ezra Eisen. Ezra Eisen is in the hierarchy. Ezra Eisen is the comptroller 
In these corporations, the comptroller holds the purse strings. You want something done, you get the comptroller. That's what you got to figure out. Who is the person who can be most unsettled? If you're going to sue in small claims court, you don't name the clerk, you name the president of the corporation. And they have to go to court. If they don't, they forfeit and you win. That's why I've won many things against publishers, because I take them to small claims court out in Azusa in the middle of September at 6 o'clock in the morning. And they're not going to fly out from New York, and so they lose. And I get a judgment against them. They say, well, he's got a judgment in California. He's not going to get us here in New York until I turn it over to the collection agency. Then the collection agency goes to the guy's fucking house and grabs his kid on the way to the private school, Phillips Exeter, holds the kid in a goddamn motel out on the Jersey Turnpike for six weeks. Then they pay me. I'll do anything. Nobody fucks with me. So... Ezra Eisen sends word through Olga Vazaris, essentially, tell him to go piss off. Oh, wrong move. Just wrong move, motherfucker. First thing I do is I start sending him truly insulting letters, all of them on Donny Osmond's stationery. <laughs> that was the first thing. I've, one of the great lessons I learned is when you're fighting a war, during World War I, they had, a, uh, they had a gun, a cannon, a railway cannon called the Big Bertha. The Big Bertha could shoot for 200 miles and kill total strangers in Lithuania. They didn't care. But when you start a war, you start small. You gradually get worse and worse and worse. You don't bring out the Big Bertha first thing. So I sent him the letters on Donny Osmond's stationery, about three a day for about two weeks. Now Olga Vazaris is calling me and saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? I'm saying, I want my rights reverted, and I want them to pulp the book. They're not going to do that. I said, oh, yeah, they'll do that. Trust me. Trust me. And Olga Vazaris said, it's going to cost me my job. I said, Olga, I have made it very clear in every one of these letters, some of which were in rhyme, that, uh, <laughs> that, uh, that, I, uh, uh, that you have nothing to do with this, and they, and they know that. Well, that didn't get much of a thing out of it. Uh, 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 so now I went to the next phase, and I can't remember what the next phase was, but it was, for, before, the, uh, it was before I got to the uh, assassin. Um, I did something else. This, my, my memory is foggy on this, but I did something else. And Olga... No, 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 they came... Was it the bricks first? And then the yeah, yeah, the bricks came first. The bricks came... <laughs> In those days, you could send a letter, you could send a letter or anything through the mail with no postage on it, and it had to be delivered. They had to pay the postage on the other end. And this is about 1975. I started sending bricks to this motherfucker and had my friends sending bricks from all over the country. Piers Anthony was sending bricks from Florida, and, 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 and Steve Waldrop was sending bricks from Texas. And they all were addressed to Ezra Eisen. And I sent in this note that said, Dear Mr. I it, it was unsigned, of course. Uh, Dear Mr. Eisen, kindly use these bricks to build the shithouse you're going to be in if you don't give Ellison his rights back. <laughs> well, he must have gotten over 200 bricks, for which he had to pay postage. And we're talking here, you know, it wasn't as expensive as it is now, but 200 bricks was some, and they had no place to put the goddamn things. They didn't know whether. So then Olga Vazeras calls me again. And she says, what are you doing? What are you doing? This is a man with a heart condition. This is a man 65 years old. He's the comptroller of the corporation. You can't do this. This man is going to die. Blah, blah, blah. I said, I understand. And it's, he will break. He will understand. So now I sent him a letter describing in detail the death of my mother from a heart attack and uh, that I was the one who wound up actually having to pull the plug. And I explained to him, this is before I'd had my own heart thing, but I explained to him that the horrible grimacing on my mother's face is what finally got the, the drool coming out, which hardened as it went down the side of her mouth, and her eyes would roll up and get kind of milky. And I said, I'm sure this does not give you much pause, but, you know, uh, can I have my rights back? Well, you know, you got any peanuts? <laughs> well, Olga Vazaris calls me now in a fucking panic. The man is going into the hospital. The man is got the man. I said, the man 
is in my face. The man better step off and do what I want, or the man is going to feel the sting of the green hornet. Still didn't do any good. I got to give it to him. Ezra Eisen was a tough old fucker. Tough old bird. Now I'm really getting into it. Now I'm, I'm, I'm like something like Renfrew of the Royal Mounted. I'm thinking, you know, Captain Marvel spent his whole life trying to bring down Sivana. And uh, how many of you here know Sivana? Okay, uh, for the rest of you, it would be uh, <laughs> uh, trying to bring down um, Tom Cruise. <laughs> well, that's not hard. You just put a pin in him and he'll... <laughs> So uh, I love, I love Paramount. I just love Paramount ditching his ass. I just, Craig, how many Scientologists are there in the room today? Oh, you cowardly fucks. I knew Ron Hubbard. I knew Ron Hubbard. Ron Hubbard and I were pals. That's the only reason the Scientologists don't come after me. Because, because Ron left word. Leave Ellison alone. <laughs> remind, me to, remind me to tell you about the, the dinner at Roddy McDowell's house with uh, um, uh, 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 the, the, the opera singer Julia McGinnis Johnson. Uh, that was a night. That was a night. Uh, with Tim McIntyre's uh, hus uh, father, John McIntyre. Uh, well, no, John was dead. It was uh, um, John's wife, the, uh, the, uh, the actress. Um, Liv Ullman? <laughs> Liv Ullman? Wait a minute. This is Maggie Thompson. Maggie Thompson. Nolan. Jeanette Nolan. It was a hell of a night. Did I ever tell you that story? I got to tell you that story one of these. I'll get to it. I'll get to it. i get to it. You're all going to buy my books afterward if I work the whole hour and a half, right? If there is a God, she will hit every one of you fuckers in the spleen with a bolt of lightning before the hour is over. Anyhow, um, he weathers the bricks. He weathers the heart attack letter. Now, I call a friend of mine. You know what I'm saying? Hey, Stugatz. This is a man who is uh, connected. New Haven connection. Big time. And I said to him, if you got somebody on the payroll, <clears throat> I don't want anybody whacked. I don't want anybody kneecapped. I just want to scare the shit out of somebody. You got someone like that? He says, oh, yeah, was it, for those of you who've read this, is it Bruno? Sandor, with Sandor. Sandor. God, that's, how could I forget that? It was Sandor. He says, he says, yeah, forget about it. He says, I got just what you want. I said, how indebted does this make me? He says, the last book you sent me, sweet. You don't owe me a thing. I say, great. I managed by hook or crook by looking back through old issues of Fortune magazine to get a good portrait photo of Ezra Eisen. Now I get it blown up at the, uh, uh, at the, at the, uh, at the, at the, at the, uh, I always like to use the right term. What was the name of the Xerox place that they, that they had? Not, oh shit, you know, they were all over the country. Pip, at Pip, thank you. Um, which is no longer around in our area, anyhow. I get this picture of Ezra Eisen blowing up, and I don't know who they're going to send, but I said, whatever you do, do not hurt this man. Just scare him. Well, they get a guy named Zandor, and he is described to me later by Olga Vizeris, who didn't see him, but who heard Ezra Eisen telling the story after he got out of the hospital. <laughs> I'm an atheist, so this means nothing, but my hand to whatever deity may be in charge this afternoon. Ezra Eisen comes out of the building on 6th Avenue, the, the, the random house offices or whatever the hell it was, the signet books, and he is enveloped by an arm from a behemoth. 
this Easter Island statue <laughs> has appeared in the middle of summer wearing, God knows what underneath, but a long black Luca Brazzi type overcoat. Long black overcoat and a hat and big, big. And he drapes his arm over Ezra Eisen like this and is walking him down the sidewalk as if he's got a monkey on a chain like this. Now Zandor, I discover, draws this kind of assignment because Zandor is a, how shall we say it, not one of the peak assassins in the stable. In fact, in an attempt to take somebody out, he drove a drill spike through his own foot. <laughs> and um, he is now mostly a chauffeur for people who need a behemoth to drive their car. But he's big. He's really, really big and really, really scary because apparently he has had some kind of throat surgery. <clears throat> and he says to Ezra Eisen, and this is an approximation because I wasn't there, you are Ezra Eisen, you are 62 years old, you are the comptroller of Signet Books, your son Timothy goes to Phillips Exeter, your daughter Marcy goes to such and such a high school. Your wife Bernice goes and does charitable work at such and such a hospital every Wednesday afternoon. Give Harlan Ellison back his rights on his book. <laughs> Drops his arm, vanishes into the crowd, leaving Ezra Eisen. It's like one of those wonderful Daffy Duck cartoons where he goes, and uh, Ezra Eisen manages to get back, back into the building where he collapses very near the front desk. And they call upstairs, and upstairs calls Maimonides. And Maimonides comes and schleps Ezra Eisen off where he has a proper heart attack. God damned if Ezra Eisen doesn't come out of it and still refuses to give me my rights back. Now, by the, this is abs I swear to you, I am not embroidering anything. If anything, I'm leaving out good stuff because I had three or four steps before the bricks. I mean, I, I was really inventive. But, and I'm in L.A. and he's in New York. And, and by this time, I got to admire the hell out of this man. I mean, honest to God, it's my Moby Dick and I, Ahab, from the heart of hell, I stab the Ezra Eisen. But Ezra Eisen is not giving up. So now I bring out the big Bertha. Now I go the absolute fucking limit. If this fails, I am defeated. I live in L.A. on the top of a mountain, right in the middle of the city. Maggie has seen it. She's been there. We have 200 acres of watershed land behind us. We have a mountain, Fossil Ridge, two million year old paleontological samples, where in fact Edgar Rice Burroughs used to have his picnics in the early 1900s. It is absolutely gorgeous. It is, it is a beautiful oasis in the middle of concrete. I live there in splendor and happiness. Quarter of a million books in the house, all the music you'd ever want to hear. My gorgeous wife, Susan, uh, over 6,000 square feet. We're adding another wing very shortly, Maggie. You're going to love it. We're calling it The Keep. It's being designed by Tim and Steve Kirk right now. It's going to be just, it's going to be beautiful. Anyhow, um, so, uh, uh, oh, let me pause for a sip of water, please. Oh, I thought I was taller. <laughs> Thank you. Some of you are alert, the rest of them. <laughs> In some ways, this is like working the Christian Science reading room. What would you do if I stopped telling the story right now? Oh, God, oh, God, not even you can get away with that. So uh, one of the problems we have is gophers. The gophers come out of the watershed land, and I can't, my backyard looks like a Victorian ruined garden. I mean, there's nothing but blossoming dirt. Every time I plant, the, I mean, they, I have literally seen 
my hand to whatever, you know, Krom or Baal or whoever's in charge this week, I have actually seen small trees poof, sucked down into the ground like a, oh, God damn. And the gophers are big fuckers, and they're nasty. And I got obsessed by them, and so I would sit out in the backyard just at sunup. At sunup, they come up, and at, and at dusk, they come out to feed. And I would wait till one of them popped its head up, and then I was sitting there with a 22. <laughs> and I would take the sucker out. Well, I killed this gopher. Got him right between the eyes. Went straight on through. It was a through and through. But clean. And when I yanked him out of the hole, filthy, miserable beast, big, fat body, about that big. And he's like this. <laughs> like that. Like he just fell out of a Lon Chaney movie. And whatever it was, whatever it was, I look at this poor dead creature, and instantly I heard in my head, Ezra Eisen. <laughs> Hit him. And I thought, oh, this is wonderful. And so, book rate. How low can you sing? <laughs> Book rate. I put this dead gopher into a bed of that shredded paper, not seltzer, what do they, what do they call it? Excelsior. Lying up like this. And on his chest, like Paddington Bear, I pin with a safety pin Theodore Cogswell's famous recipe for boiled gopher stew that appears in Anne McCaffrey's book, Cooking Out of This World. And I close it up, and I put postage on it, and I mail it, book rate, fourth class mail, which is slower than catalogs, <clears throat> in August. Well, they tell me that by the time it hit the Chicago shunting station, it was high. High, folks, it was high. Well, the reports I got, mostly from Olga Vazeris, who was in tears and absolutely hysterical, was that they had to shut down the mailroom. It was there over a weekend. They had to seal off the first two floors of the building. They had to call in the fumigators, cost them thousands and thousands of dollars. And finally, one day into my mailbox popped this reversion of rights from Ezra Eisen. And that's the true story. No, I didn't send a rat to a Hollywood producer. I sent a gopher to a New York publisher. Now, here's the, here's the coda, such as it is. Neil Gaiman, whose name I'm sure you're familiar with, Neil Gaiman was coming into L.A., and Neil and I are old pals, and he was going to be speaking at the Queen Mary down in Long Beach. And he asked me to come down, and we would have dinner, and I would speak, too, and they advertised that I would be there. Susan and I get in the car, and we get trapped on the San Diego freeway right opposite the, the newly opened Getty Museum. It was a million-wheeled worm right at rush hour. We couldn't get to the place. We were, on the, we were on the freeway for two and a half hours until we were able even to edge to a place where we could get off. And then I said, that's it. I can't do it. I'm going home. About six months later, Neil and I get together. And he says, oh, he says, oh, I met a very interesting. I do a bad Neil Gaiman imitation. Uh, every, he, he sounds a lot like a Cockney when I do it. Uh, he says, oh, I met a fascinating fellow on uh, the Queen Mary. He was part of the uh, the uh, the steward crew, and I said, yeah, why well, was he interesting? He said, you cost him his job at New American Library. He was the fellow who was working in the mail room <laughs> who left the package over the weekend. <laughs> and I thought, you know, 
Neil, don't die. I need you alive to verify my story. Because I'll go among you in Mufti. I like to go you among you, my people, to seek, to listen, to hear. What movie is that from? Thief of Baghdad, 1939. You're absolutely right. You win the gold-plated <laughs> unicorn turd, which we have right outside at the table where I'm selling my books. Did I mention I was selling my books? And there are tapes of my lectures, which are really terrific, and my readings, which are even better. And um, you can have me at home whenever you want me. Oh, God. So um, let's see. That's okay. That takes care of that. How much time do we have left? <laughs> Today, Anaheim. Tomorrow. What movie is that from? Very good. You win in a unicorn turd also. Yes, my dear. You have a hand up. If Boy, is that a strange question. <laughs> what she said was, what would I do if the person to whom I have given the most proposals, I presume you mean of marriage, of marriage, what would I do if they said yes today? I would start running because my wife would have me killed. That's the first thing. The second answer, which is even more to the point, uh, all of them said yes. That's why I had four bad marriages. Uh, Susan and I have been married uh, 20 years, the seventh of next month. And she is the one selling my books at the table outside this room. And if I, if you, if you, if I am any price at all, she is peaches. She is terrific. We met so fucking cute you could get diabetes from it. Are you Jan Sadler Penny? Do I know you? Did I ever propose to you? Have I had your baby? What would I say to her if she were in uniform? Do I remember when who was in uniform? You? The person I have been, well, I've been proposing to Anne McCaffrey for 40 years. <laughs> Ursula Le Guin and I talked yesterday and we flirted with each other like a pair of sluts. Uh, I can't remember ever proposing to anybody in uniform, but it doesn't surprise me. When Susan married me, she knew that I was a, that I was a tr cheap tramp. It was said of me, I mean, I'd been married four times before I met Susan. I had had, you're going to, some of you are going to think this is braggadocio. I mean it not to be braggadocio. I do not mean it to be hubris. This actually happened, and I guess it was embarrassing. My fourth, fifth, fourth wife, my fourth wife, I met her at a, uh, a lecture I gave at a college in the San Fernando Valley. She was very, very pretty, and uh, I was single, and when I was single, I would, you know, mess around as much as I felt like. I never, ever cheated on a wife. I never, ever cheated on a woman I was living with. I'm absolutely fidelitous, and I, and I'm a, and I'm a, and I was a good boyfriend because I don't hit. Uh, I don't drink. I've never drunk. I've never, I never, ever drink. Uh, I, know, I don't use drugs, uh, and uh, uh, how many of you know, don't forget where I am, how many of you have ever heard of Brother Theodore? Okay, for those of you who have not, Brother Theodore was not a comedian. He was not a stand-up. He was kind of a storyteller, monologist, uh, raconteur. He was in New York Cafe. We have five minutes. This is my wife, Susan. Here, come here. Here, honey, stand on the chair here for one minute. Come here, come here, come here, come here, stand. I know, I know you got books out there. They know that. Stand on the chair, honey. Stand on the chair. Now, this is my honey. Okay, we got five minutes. We got five minutes. I'll, I'll get done with it. Brother Theodore was in, in New York Cafe Society for a great number of years. 
He gave performances. He worked in small clubs. And he was absolutely mesmerizing. One of the most memorable people I've ever known. And I was dying to meet him. And in fact, I got to meet him. Otto Penzler, who ran the Mysterious Bookshop and still does. Uh, 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 some friends arranged it that I would meet Teddy. And Brother Theodore, and this was, uh, oh, it's at least 20 years ago now. Uh, Teddy and I got together in the Sherlock Holmes drawing room of Otto Penzler's mysterious bookshop upstairs, and we sat in big easy chairs and talked to each other, and we bonded so quickly that two and a half hours, three hours went by before we realized we had not gone out to dinner as we had planned. And if you've never seen Teddy perform or, or do his thing, there are some records, if you can find them, if you ever see a record of Theodore, buy it. It is fantastically rare and, and wonderful. But Teddy would work like this. He was on David Letterman a lot. And that's why I despise Letterman, because Teddy blew him away. Teddy was so good. And Letterman was jealous of it and couldn't handle it and stopped having him on the show after a while, and Teddy couldn't get booked anywhere. But Teddy would do a thing like this. He would say to David, David Letterman would say to him, and, I'm, and, I'm, and his hair was wild. You've seen him in movies, in The Burbs. You've seen The Burbs? He's the crazy uncle with the crazy white hair. Is there anyone here over the age of nine? <laughs> Jesus Christ, for these people, nostalgia is what they had for breakfast. Well, Teddy had, had wild hair. He had an amazing life, and he spoke with a thick Bavarian accent like this. But Teddy would, Letterman would say to him, well, what have you been, uh, what have you been up to, Brother Theodore? And Teddy would say, ah, yes, Mr. Letterman. Well, of late, I have been training rats. Yes. Training rats, you know, you can raise and train a rat if you work for days and months and years. You can train a rat. However, when you're done, all you have is a trained rat. <laughs> he was astonishing, absolutely astonishing. And he and I sat and told our life stories to each other. And mine has been, believe me, if we had another four and a half hours, I could, I could keep you in stitches for at least. 20 minutes of that. <laughs> and after we got, I got, we got done talking to each other, he says, you know, Harlan, he says, the problem with us, the reason that women cannot stay around us very long, we are very much alike in this way. And I said, why is that? Why is that, Teddy? He said, well, when they first meet us, they are mesmerized. They are enchanted at this magical creature who is talking to them, and they laugh, and they feel passion, and they feel... They feel the world coming to them, and they say, yes, yes, I wish to cling to this for a while. And they come with us, and they are with us, and we satisfy them, and they are in our grasp and our grasp for days and weeks and months. And then they say, when will he shut up? When will he stop talking? And they run shrieking into the streets. So apart from that, I've always been a pretty good boyfriend. And as a consequence, I got laid a lot. And uh, in fact, it was said of me that I had fucked every woman on the western seacoast and was working his way inland. Uh, the names of some of the people that I have been to bed with would make most of these dickless wonders here uh, really be uh, upset. Uh, I, one night I put, uh, I in fact put Rita Hayworth to bed. I did not have knowledge of her. She was in a bad drunken way and, and all, but I did put Rita Hayworth to bed, and uh, I have dated Anne Margaret, and uh, uh, Vicki Carr was an old pal of mine, and I'm not saying that uh, we did the uh, bump of glee, but uh, I'm, anyhow. So uh, here I am in the car with this young woman whom I have met at some, at this college uh, uh, lecture, and we've been out to lunch or something like that, and it's apparent we're going to go hang out a little and wind up in bed and whatever's going to happen. This is, this is more than 25 years ago. And uh, I was maybe 10 years older than she was, but not much more than that. And uh, looking good. I was not the little tub of shit you see before you now. <laughs> I look good. I was studly. And uh, she says to me, how many women have you slept with? So I said, um, OK. I said, uh, it's Chinese af aphorism time. Be careful what you wish for. You might get the answer. And she says, well, how many? I said, well, how many guys have you slept with? And she said, three. And I said, no, you're not telling the truth. 
it's at least five. And she said, what? And I said, yeah, it's at least five. She said, well, you only know me two days. How can you? And I said, think about it for me. And she thought about it. And she said, oh, my God, you're right. This is one of my strange powers <laughs> that I acquired in the Orient where I learned the power to cloud men's minds so they cannot see me. Um, I read body language pretty well. And she said to me, so how many women? And I wrote about this in uh, the paperback re uh, a reprint of Love Ain't Nothing But Sex Misspelled. It's just before a story I wrote called uh, I, I Curse the Lesson and Bless the Knowledge. And I said to her, well, I stopped counting at 700. <laughs> now, this may seem like a lot to some of you, Sad fucks that thee may be. <laughs> to others, you will say, well, wait a minute. Uh, I'm sure of, of, of um, a Shaquille O'Neal. Basketball players who have, you know, slept with 12, 13, Keith Richards. Uh, when I was on tour with the Stones, there must have been, I was with them a week, there must have been 20 different women. Uh, if you are a decent human being and you can make women laugh, and that's the secret, you guys, all the earnest shit is bullshit. Because anybody looks like a gawking chimpanzee when they get close enough to pucker up to kiss. But if you can make a woman laugh, particularly while you're screwing her, <laughs> particularly while you're having sex, which will stave off the or oh well. We're Perhaps I know too much. Perhaps I have said too much. Uh, she looked at me as if I had just fallen off the dark side of the moon. I said, I stopped counting at 700. Now, Susan, when she heard this story, and Susan knew all of my past when we got married. She was under no illusion. There were no scales on her eyes. One day, Susan was cleaning out a drawer of photographs, and underneath whatever the top strata uh, was there were hundreds and hundreds of photographs of the women I had been with and in among them were lists of who I was dating each each sheet would hold two days and at one point I was having it off with four and five women a day and writing some of the best stuff I've ever written I mean I was writing like a madman and getting the ashes hauled. It was great. That was, my, that was my Hollywood period. I went Hollywood for about six months. And whoopee, it was just fine. Uh, and she looked at this list, and she came out, and she said, who the hell is it? And she started naming off women. And I said, oh, my God, I haven't thought of her in years. Where did you find that? And, and there were all these lists. And one of them was 9.30, breakfast, 11 o'clock brunch, 2.30, oh, it was wonderful. And... <laughs> So, I have proposed to virtually everybody. <coughs> I once proposed to Maurice Chevalier in a restaurant in New York. We were having dinner, and I said, <laughs> will you marry me? <coughs> and he said, that is the worst Maurice Chevalier imitation I've ever heard. And I said to him, I said to him, every little voice seems to whisper Louise. I said to him, have you ever heard my imitation of a frog? He says, no. Commence. And I went, repeat, repeat. <laughs> <coughs> okay, that's the, um, that's the performance. I will be in attendance tonight. I ask if any of you would like to buy one of my works. This is very, this is fun. And this will probably be my last convention. Kiddos, I've been doing this since 51, for Christ's sake. There is not a question I have not answered 2,000 times. There is not a panel I have not sat on 1,200 times. You are terrific. You are, you've been a, a lovely, 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 lovely audience. I'm 72, guys. I want to stay home and have some ginger snaps and milk. <laughs> I got a great wife. I'm incredibly happy. You are looking at a really happy guy. I have lived my life precisely and exactly the way I wanted to live it. I am what I made of myself. I'm responsible for all of it. There is not any of it I can blame on anybody else. My mommy locked me in the basement or, gee, if, uh, you know, I'd had a chance. I've had all the chances in the world. I, uh, I have turned the most awful 
events to my, have redounded to my benefit every time. It has nothing to do with luck. For those of you who need a parting sermon, it's this. The words I live by are those of Louis Pasteur, who said, chance favors the prepared mind. The more you know, the less you will get fucked up. Please come outside and give me money and let me talk to you there. Thank you much. That was Harlan Ellison at Worldcon 2006. Quality time from a man with quality to spare. For the Agony Column, I'm Rick Kleffel. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom slash agony.